An economy built on the ideas of the Communist Manifesto will quite necessarily look very different from an economy built on the ideas of the wealth of nations. The debate between socialism and capitalism is not a debate over how to accommodate different opinions. It's a debate over how the economy actually works. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. This week, we're going back in time to January 3rd, 2008, and a lecture delivered here in Grand Rapids by Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. In this lecture, Dr. Morse describes how the socialist ideal of equality has played an independent role in the breakdown of the family, arguing that socialism has attacked the family directly and has adopted policies that have led to demographic collapse. Dr. Morse is the founder of the Ruth Institute, an interfaith international coalition to defend the family and build a civilization of love. She has authored or co-authored six books and spoken around the globe on marriage, family, and human sexuality. Her latest book is The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. She earned her PhD at the University of Rochester and taught economics at Yale and George Mason University. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Jenny Roback Morse is a PhD in economics. But what's interesting about Jenny is she doesn't talk so much about economics per se. Her interest really uh, is marriage, sexuality, and family. And she writes a great deal about how uh, trends are developing in those areas in the United States and abroad, but also the economic implications of what it means when families, the dynamics of families, the nature of families, the structure of families starts to change. It's often said, I believe, that demography is destiny. Uh, and that's a classic example where we see economics and thinking about the nature of the family come into dialogue with each other. Now, uh, Jenny has had a very long and illustrious career. Uh, she is a committed career woman before she had children. And she did a doctorate, uh, I believe, at Rutgers. That's right, Rutgers. And she then spent 15 years teaching at Yale University and George Mason. In 1991, I, I suspect she probably uh, uh, changed a great deal of her life when she and her husband adopted a two-year-old Romanian boy. And then they were lucky enough to give birth to a baby girl. Uh, in 1996, she left her full-time university teaching post to move with her family to California, where she was a research fellow at Stanford's university's Hoover Institution. Uh, since, I believe, 2005, 2006, she's been a part-time research fellow, or I should say a senior fellow in economics at the Acton Institute. And she writes and speaks about uh, love, marriage, sexuality in the family, all around the country. Let me mention a couple of her books that I, I suspect some of you may be interested in. 
I think one of her really excellent books is Love and Economics, Why the Laissez-Faire Family Doesn't Work, which was published in 2001 by Spence Publishing. Uh, she's also the author of uh, Smart Sex, Finding Lifelong Love in a Hookup World, which was published in 2005. She's also written extensively uh, for newspapers, both religious and secular in nature. Uh, she's spoken at conferences organized by the Vatican. Uh, she's also written a great number of scholarly articles as well. Uh, and she currently lives in Vista, California. Uh, she also has her own website. And if you Google Jennifer Robeck Morse, the website will come up. Uh, but those of you who are interested in her work and her ideas and the types of things that she's doing and speaking about in the United States and around the world, she has an email uh, newsletter which goes out on a regular basis. There's a sign-up list for it here. So any of you who are interested in signing up to her email list, I'll pass this around so that those of you who wish to do so can do so. Uh, the subject of today's lecture... <clears throat> The subject of today's lecture is, I guess, a good mixture of politics and economics. It's called Freedom, the Family, and the Market, a humane response to the socialist attack on the family. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ruback Morse. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here in Grand Rapids and to have the opportunity to address all of you on this topic. They, um, as Sam said, I've been involved with the Acton Institute since the very beginning. Um, I remember Chris when he was an undergraduate um, at Johns Hopkins and Father Sirico when he was a seminarian at Catholic U. So we go back way be even before the Acton Institute was founded. So my lecture today, as Sam said, is called Freedom, the Family, and the Market a humane response to the socialist attack on the family. And you will see some of the overlap of the various Acton ideas as well as the issues of the family. <clears throat> Many critics accuse capitalism of destroying the family. Industrialism drew fathers out of the home to earn a living, and a hundred years later, the women followed. But economic pressures on the family are incidental to the main structures of the market economy. By contrast, the socialist attack on marriage has been central to socialist ideology from the very beginning and continues right down to the present hour. Those of us who are free market advocates sometimes view socialism as principally an economic ideology with the attacks on the family as a mere sideshow. I believe this is a mistake. I believe it's more accurate to view the socialist attack on the family and marriage in particular as simply a second front on their, in their war in attempt to centralize society entirely under the control of the state. So in this lecture, I'm going to make three points. First, I'm going to show that socialism is just as committed to abolishing the universal institution of marriage as it has been to abolishing the universal institution of private property. Second, I will show that the socialist program of eliminating gender differences and attacking marriage have serious consequences for economic and personal freedom. And finally, I will show that Christianity offers more appealing solutions to the problems that socialism claims to be solving. So first, let's deal with gender and marriage in socialist thought. Now looking at American sexual politics, person might conclude that absolute sexual equality in all areas of life 
was something that desperate socialists came up with when they realized they could never win on purely economic issues. But socialism has had marriage in its crosshairs from the very beginning. Frederick Engels equated the dominance of men over women with the dominance of capitalists over workers. He writes of an early, almost mythical period in which group marriage, without concern for who was whose parent, was the norm. According to Engels, the transition from group marriage to monogamy marked the beginning of the subordination of women. And I hear I'm quoting Engels. Quote, the overthrow of mother right was the world historical defeat of the female sex. The man took command in the home also. The woman was degraded and reduced to servitude. She became a slave of his lust and a mere instrument for the production of children, close quote. He argues further that the economic and legal status of women is intimately connected to the organization of the household. I ask your indulgence for an extensive quotation from Engels. I'm not, as they say, making this up. Quote, the legal inequality of the two partners bequeathed to us from earlier social conditions is not the cause, but the effect of the economic oppression of women. In the old communist household, which comprised many couples and their children, the task entrusted to women of managing the household was as much a public, a socially necessary industry as the procuring of food by the men. With the patriarchal family, and still more with the single monogamous family, a change came. Household management lost its public character. It no longer concerned society. It became a private service. The wife became the head servant, excluded from all participation in social production. Within the family, the husband is the bourgeois, and the wife represents the proletariat. The first condition for the liberation of the wife is to bring the whole female sex into public industry. This, in turn, demands that the characteristic of the monogamous family as the economic unit of society be abolished. Close quote. Now, this perspective of Engels helps explain why so many on the left have been essentially undisturbed by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, free market advocates didn't appreciate the fact that the command economy was only one front on the war for collective society. I thought, perhaps you thought, that when Soviet communism collapsed, that would be the end of it. The Marxists would get it, and they'd all go home. But in fact, they did no such thing. The collectivization of the family is the other, and perhaps the more serious front. That yearning for the mythic communal past of group marriage and group responsibility for childcare explains a number of the priorities of the lifestyle left. Women belong in the market employment, not just because they enjoy the work or they need the money. Women belong in the market because working mothers require some form of childcare outside the home. The left is indifferent to the rise in unmarried childbearing and the increase in the divorce rate because these, quote, alternative family forms, which is what they call them, these family forms reduce the dependence of the mother on the child's biological father and increase the demand for state-supported social services. So I will now show how weakening marriage diminishes both economic and personal freedom. Now, many of us support one of the stated objectives of feminism of creating equal opportunities and incomes for women. But even this relatively innocuous goal gave the left political entree into regulating wages and working conditions that American society would never have accepted on any other terms. 
Full income equality requires equal behaviors, not only in the market, but also at home. Men and women are so different that they are unlikely, highly unlikely, to volunteer to behave identically in all the ways that would be necessary to literally equalize incomes. So now we have not only laws against wage discrimination, we also have regulations for hiring, firing, and promotion. We have rules about workplace behavior that might create a, quote, hostile environment. We have regulations of the schools to make sure that women and girls feel welcome. So much so that now women outnumber men in most undergraduate college programs. The federal government demands equality in, co in college athletic programs, and some feminist advocates advocate regulating the numbers of students in math, science, and engineering programs, which are the last male-dominated bastions within academic life. Socialist Spain even passed a law requiring husbands to do half the housework, if you can imagine such a thing. Now, <clears throat> because the left considers monogamous marriage a central part of the capitalist system of private property, they have put enormous energy into destabilizing marriage. Liberalizing divorce laws was one of the very first actions of the Bolsheviks in Russia in 1917 and of the socialist government in Spain in 2005. Our American experience with no-fault divorce illustrates why the advocates of centralized state power are so interested in divorce. Presented to the public as a great expansion of personal liberty, no-fault divorce has led to an increase in the power of the government over individual private lives. No-fault divorce frequently means unilateral divorce. That is, one party wants a divorce against the wishes of the other who wants to stay married. Therefore, the divorce has to be enforced. That means the coercive machinery of the state has to be wheeled into action to separate the reluctantly divorced party from the joint assets of the marriage, which usually means the family home and the children. Family courts then end up telling people what to do in order to enforce this separation, which one of them didn't really want. Family courts tell fathers how much money they have to spend on their children and how much time they get to spend with them. Courts tell mothers whether they can move away from their children's fathers. Courts rule on whether a father's attendance at a little league game, a public event which anyone can attend, whether his attendance at a little league game counts toward his visitation time. Courts rule on which parents gets to spend Christmas Day with the children, down to and including the precise time of day that they have to turn the child over to the other parent. Involving the family court in the minutia of family life amounts to an unprecedented intrusion of the state into the private lives of individuals. And it's a blurring of the boundaries between private and public life. People under the jurisdiction of family courts can have virtually all of their private lives subject to his scrutiny through psychological evaluations and the like. If the courts are influenced by an ideology such as feminism, that ideology will end up reaching into the bedroom and kitchen of every household in America. Now, at the same time, the breakup of families or the failure of families to form in the first place leads to an expansion of state authority and expense. Children from disrupted families do worse than the children of intact marriage couples in virtually every way you can think of. 
Children are more likely to have physical and mental health problems. Even accounting for the differences in income between fatherless homes and intact homes, fatherless boys are more likely to be aggressive and to ultimately become incarcerated. A recent British study offers tantalizing hints about the possibility that, single, that the children of single mothers are more likely to become schizophrenic. And an extensive study of family structure in Sweden took account of the mental illness history of the parents as well as the family's socioeconomic status. Yet even in the most generous welfare state in the world, Sweden, with very accepting attitudes toward unmarried parenting, I mean, we couldn't really top Sweden in that department, could we? The children of single parents still are at higher risk of psychiatric disease, suicide attempts, and substance abuse, even in Sweden. <clears throat> now, all of these social pathologies are expensive to the taxpayer and painful to the individuals. Most people would consider this to be a disadvantage of family breakdown. But Marxists do not share this view. From their perspective, the family, the married couple family, is a conservative tool for, quote, privatizing the care of the young, a responsibility that ought to be assumed by the state. The latest leftist strategy has been to insist that marriage should not be, quote, privileged as the normal context for child rearing. The state should be, quote, neutral and not discriminate among family forms. <clears throat> To see that this demand is not as reasonable as it sometimes sounds, imagine somebody making the comparable argument for free markets. They might argue that the government should be neutral between private property and collective property, between enforcing contracts or not enforcing contracts. People who want contracts should pay to have them enforced themselves. They should not ask the government to subsidize their private and possibly irrational preference for private property and contracts. Now, I don't think very many free market advocates would accept that kind of claim, that the state should be indifferent between a centrally planned economy and a market-ordered economy. An economy built on the ideas of the Communist Manifesto will quite necessarily look very different from an economy built on the ideas and the wealth of nations. The debate between socialism and capitalism is not a debate over how to accommodate different opinions. It's a debate over how the economy actually works. Everything from the law of contracts to antitrust to commercial law will all reflect some basic understanding of how the economy works in fact. Similarly, the debate over marriage is a debate over what marriage is and how it works in fact. I claim that the sexual urge is the natural engine of sociability which solidifies a relationship between spouses and brings children into being. Others claim that human sexuality is a private recreational good with no moral or social significance. I claim that children have the best life chances when they are raised by their married biological parents. Others believe that children are so adaptable that having unmarried parents presents no significant problems. Some people believe that marriage is a special case of the free association of individuals. I say the details of this particular form of free association are so distinctive as to make marriage a unique social institution that deserves to be defended on its own terms and not as a special case of something else. <clears throat> One side in this dispute is mistaken. There's enormous room for debate, but ultimately there's no room for compromise. The legal institutions, social expectations, and cultural norms 
will all reflect some view or another about the meaning of marriage. Trying to build a free society without marriage is like trying to build a prosperous economy without property rights. It sounds good on the chalkboard, but in reality, it simply can't be done. But perhaps the most destructive result of the attack on marriage has been the destruction of the little civil society of the family. In most societies, in most times and places, the married couple is the most basic unit of social cooperation. A man and a woman come together spontaneously to create a child and then work together to raise that child. Marxists believe that that cooperation is simply a fiction, a mere cover for the relationship of male dominance and power. Now, in countries where that Marxist belief has been institutionalized, the combination of ideology and taxes and benefits have subsidized unmarried motherhood. According to Patricia Morgan, writing for the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, some British government officials hold that, quote, the treatment of a married couple as a single financial unit should be discouraged, along with any predisposition in favor of the nuclear family, close quote. The state is presumed responsible for the support of children of unmarried parents. For all practical purpose, purposes, that means that the married and the childless are paying and are being taxed to pay for the children of the unmarried. Now, the results of that discrimination against marriage is that many women, particularly lower income and less educated women, now raise children completely on their own with little or no assistance from the child's father. The number of children born to unmarried mothers has increased from 8% in 1970 to 42% in 2004 in the United Kingdom. In the U.S., 37% of children are now born to unmarried mothers, and among African Americans in the U.S., over 70% of children are born to unmarried mothers. It's instructive to look at the country that has been most influenced by Marxist ideas, which is, of course, Russia. The old Soviet Union implemented all the main socialist ideas. The family and civil society were destroyed along with the economy. The result is one of the most unstable and unhealthy situations in the world. Because the Soviets discouraged marriage and wrecked the economy, Russia is in the bottom 5% of fertility rates in the whole world. At 1.27 babies per woman, the Russian population will be nearly cut in half every generation. That is to say, we're looking at a shrinking population on, a, 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 on the largest physical country in the world. The population is shrinking. Now, because people were expected to spy on each other for the last two or three generations, nobody trusts anybody else. This further weakens the economy and reduces the propensity to marry and to have children. The net result of all of this is that the Russian worker who's expected to support a rapidly aging population is now less healthy and less productive than virtually any other worker throughout the developed world. So they're not only an aging population, but a very sick population. There won't be anybody really to take care of the elderly people as they age. In the, in, in the Soviet Union, and of course they don't, they don't really have any social security system because there's no capital that anybody set aside to, to be able to invest to take care of the elderly. Now the final point is that uh, while the left made an idol out of equality, it has become very clear that many people are necessarily excluded from its concern with equality. The physically weak, the incapacitated, the disabled, 
can never be the equal of the strong. Under the influence of leftist ideas, many countries completely exclude these people from the most basic protections of law. The infant in the womb has been excluded in many secularized countries from any legal protection whatsoever. Euthanasia is sometimes described as mercy killing, but it has become clear that it's often simply killing for convenience. Now, it's not simply that the infirm are not useful, as you might expect from a purely utilitarian perspective. It's that the infirm, I believe, the infirm, the disabled, are an affront to the ideas of equality. The child in the womb can't be the equal of the adult. The person at the end of his life can never again be the equal of the young person and the fit person. The disabled person, no matter how many resources are directed towards him, can never be made the equal of the person without disabilities. So they become non-persons. It is certainly the political left throughout the world that has promoted these policies and has offered the most elaborate justifications for them. Fortunately, Christianity proposes an alternative vision of life of what is truly valuable and worth pursuing. Christianity insists that we defend the weak rather than promoting equality. And it's become very clear, I think, that defending the weak is a different ethical mandate from creating equality. Defending the weak, of course, includes the right to life from conception till natural death. Our enemies worldwide are primarily from the left end of the political spectrum who demand equality for every other group in every other circumstance other than life-threatening ones. Christianity, of course, also offers a different vision of gender. Under the Christian vision, we embrace the differences between men and women as part of the divine plan for teaching love and drawing us out of our natural self-centeredness. Marriage is inherently a gender-based institution because it helps men and women to bridge the natural differences that exist between us. Marriage is a school and household of love. Within the household, men and women learn to help each other, to cooperate with each other, and to understand one another. This is very different from the socialist image of husbands and wives at each other's throats in competition for dominance and power inside their own homes. Socialists insist that love, sex, and reproduction be separated from each other for the sake of making men and women equal. But this view necessarily places men and women at odds with each other. Men exploit women for sex, seeing them as objects that simply give pleasure. Women, in turn, exploit men for reproduction, treating them sometimes as a combination of wallet and sperm bank. The Christian vision insists that marriage is the proper context for both sexual activity and child-rearing. The man's sexual desire for woman turns him towards love for her. Christianity insists that this love for her be connected with love for her children. The woman's desire for children turns her heart toward the man who will be the father of her children. Christianity insists that she love her husband rather than use him and discard him. Love, sex, and childbearing are all integrated with each other under the umbrella of marriage within the Christian vision. Now, and Christianity, combined with free market thinking, offers a different solution to the economic inequality between men and women that socialism has tried to promote. Marxist-inspired feminism insisted on identical incomes for men and women at every point in their working lives. This misguided 
concept of justice has shaped 40 years worth of public and corporate policy, not to mention 40 years worth of people's individual personal choices as women came to believe that their primary objective should be to be equal with men in the workforce all the time. But traditional male career trajectories demand the most intense investments early in our lives. By the time women have accomplished enough in their careers to feel financially prepared for motherhood, their peak fertility is often behind them. And of course, it takes a long time to figure that out by yourself. By the time you figure it out, it may be too late to do anything about it. And nobody talks to the young women about this fact, that getting tenure, getting their degrees, and all of that stuff is going to postpone their childbearing so long that it may be impossible for them to meet the other important life goals that they have. I say that women would be better off if we simply accepted the reality that our fertility peaks during our 20s. Go to college for a liberal, not a vocational education. Get married. Have kids. Let your husband support you. Maybe go back to school for an advanced degree. Go to work. Help support the kids in college and help support your joint retirement. And since women live longer than men, we could be working longer and let our husbands relax a little bit. Of course, <clears throat> this vision of the workplace also involves an alternative vision of marriage and family. Under this vision, marriage is a lifelong institution for mutual cooperation and support, rather than the unenforceable non-contract that it has become. And I need not say that cooperation between the spouses would be far better for the children. Nor need I say that this is exactly the opposite of the feminist vision, which essentially replaced marital stability with employment stability. You were supposed to feel, find your security in your own ability to work rather than to find any security within your married life. Now, in conclusion, <clears throat> I would like to point out that Catholic social teaching joins with the Dutch Reformed tradition of sphere sovereignty in defending the family as a social institution that is independent of the state. The family is independent of the state and has claims against the state. In Centesimus Annus, John Paul, Pope John Paul uh, reiterates the point that was originally made by Pope Leo XIII way back a hundred years before in Rerum Novarum. He said, Leo XIII frequently insisted on the necessary limits to the state's intervention and on its instrumental character inasmuch as the family and society are prior to the state, and inasmuch as the state exists in order to protect the rights of family and society, not to stifle them. Now, as supporters of the Axton Institute, you're well aware that freedom and virtue work together in a symbiotic relationship. The free economy allows individuals to use their talents for the good of the community. The market needs the leavening of the gospel to moderate its excesses, and to provide the virtuous participants who are the foundation, really, of the mar market's genius. I think it is time to weave the life of the family into this vision of the free and virtuous market and the free and virtuous market participants. The market cannot float on its own bottom. The market needs the other institutions of civil society. Just as the market needs religion to cultivate virtue, the market also needs the family to socialize children to teach cooperation, and to move society forward into the next generation. The Christian social vision focuses on the human person and his capacity for love. 
Christianity respects the family as the great pre-political social institution and marriage as the most basic unit of social cooperation. The family shapes the next generation and transmits the culture's values to them. The family truly is the cradle of any civilization, especially the civilization of freedom and of love. Thank you very much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.